2003, a mother is convicted of three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm. She's sentenced to 40 years in prison. Subsequent appeals were dismissed. Now, there is a new inquiry into her conviction. Was it murder or did her children die of natural causes? This is the story of Kathleen Folby. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, tonight's case is a disturbing one. There won't be that much gore or descriptions of violence. It does deal with the death of children and I know some of you are very sensitive to that, so please be warned. Now, the reason I'm bringing you this case this week is that just recently, New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman announced there would be an inquiry into the convictions to, as he says, ensure public confidence in the administration of justice. Now, I know there are a lot of supporters for Kathleen Forbig out there, so what I aim to do in this episode is to bring everyone up to speed on the case. I will give a background on Kathleen And for the most part, I will be reading almost directly from court records. By the end of the show, you should be able to form some opinion on the case in preparation for the upcoming inquiry, which will introduce different opinions on the evidence that was presented in her trial. So, please don't shoot the messenger. As I said in the intro... Kathleen Folbig was convicted on three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm. The victims were her four children, Caleb, 20 days old, Patrick, just over six months old, Sarah, 10 months old and Laura, just over 18 months old. Now, at the time of each child's death, pathologists were unable to determine the exact cause of death. What I will be bringing you tonight, Islanders, will come, as I said, mainly from court records. I would like to say also that if she is retried, that any potential juror in the retrial behaves as per the judge's instruction, and if they are listening to this podcast in some future time, that they base any decision they have on the facts that are brought before them in court. So, that means don't listen to what I've got to say, listen to what they have in court. I've also read, other than newspapers and court records, extracts from Matthew Ben's book, When the Bow Breaks, The True Story of Child Killer Kathleen Folby. Now, he was present at the whole seven-and-a-half-week trial. So, who is Kathleen Folbig? Well, I can tell you, the early part of her life is horrific. 
Kathleen Folbig was born on the 14th of June 1967. Her father, Thomas John Britton, was a vicious bastard. Born in Wales, he would drink, fight and he seemed to always have a lady. He jumped ship in Australia and worked on road crews and eventually got a job on the Balmain docks. He would often lose his job after fighting on site and he was linked to underworld figures such as Lenny McPherson and Robert Trimboli where he was one of their hitmen and debt collectors. He slashed his first wife Margaret Cope's throat with a knife. She survived and he did only eight months inside. Britain would then meet Kathleen's mother, Kathleen Donovan, and Kathleen was born. Soon, Kathleen Donovan walked out on her abusive husband, leaving her daughter behind. She was a drinker and a gambler, and had done the exact same thing with her previous husband. Britain suspected his wife was rooting around, and eventually, after several attempts to get her to return home, he confronted her on December the 8th, 1968, where she was staying at Pritchard Street, Annandale, which is an inner suburb of Sydney. They were both drunk and fighting. Eventually, it was overheard by the neighbours that Britain yelled, and please brace for the shock of what you're about to hear, Britain yelled, You're a black slut for leaving an 18-month-old baby. I'll stick a knife in your ribs. And he did. He stabbed Catherine Donovan, Catherine Folbig's mother, 24 times with a 25-centimetre carving knife. He immediately gave himself up to police. Britain was tried and found guilty of murdering his de facto wife, Kathleen Donovan, On the 26th of May 1969, Mr. Justice Lee Gay Brereton sentenced him to life imprisonment. He served 14 years in prison and was then deported. So Kathleen was only about 18 months old when she lost her mother and father. She was made a ward of the state and placed into the care of Mr. and Mrs. Platt. Mrs. Platt was Kathleen's mum's sister and the Platts had often cared for Kathleen in her short life. Now back to court records. Officers of the Department of Child Welfare visited Mr. and Mrs. Platt from time to time to record the progress of Kathleen. They were entirely satisfied with the care afforded by the Platts, and things went well until a departmental report made on the 21st of May 1970 when Kathleen was one month short of her third birthday. On the 18th of May 1970, Mrs Platt said on the occasion of a home visit that she was having trouble teaching Kathleen the basic requirements of hygiene and acceptable behaviour. Kathleen was described as having severe temper tantrums and being extremely aggressive, particularly towards other children who visited the home. She seemed to have a preoccupation with her sexual organs and had been seen on a couple of occasions trying to insert various objects into her vagina. She would on occasions scream and cry incessantly and cause much embarrassment inside and outside the home. Kathleen was referred to the Yaguna Child Health Clinic where Dr Spencer saw her for assessment. 
In her report of the 12th of June 1970, Dr. Spencer reported that Mrs. Platt was then describing her as virtually uncontrollable and a disruptive influence on the marriage. She indulged in excessive sex play and masturbation. Dr. Spencer commented, The social history is well known to you and it seems that Kathleen was misused by her father during infancy. In a departmental report of the 23rd of June 1970, Mrs. Platt is said to have complained that Kathleen's behaviour was deteriorating. She was still very brutal to other children and destructive in the home. She was continuing to masturbate herself and although steps had been taken to change her sexual behaviour, little was being achieved. When corrected in any way, she continued to scream and cry in retaliation. On the 18th of July 1970, when Kathleen was three years old, she was withdrawn from the care of Mr and Mrs Platt and sent to Bajura Children's Home. On the 4th of August 1970, a psychologist assessed her intelligence as within the borderline and, as they said back then, retarded range. However, the psychologist qualified the measurement by remarking on her remoteness and lack of responsiveness, restlessness and inattentiveness. Subsequent experience shows that the assessment was unreliable. During the same month, a further report described her as unresponsive and withdrawn and rarely smiling or talking when shown individual attention. However, there were signs that she was becoming more approachable and more interested in objects and events around her. During the following month, she was described as much less withdrawn, chattering to other children and staff, and showing a greater interest in her environment. She was still aggressive with other children when she did not get her own way, however, and readily pushed and pulled at them to achieve her objectives. There were no reports of continued masturbation. Kathleen was placed into the foster care of Mr and Mrs Marlborough in September 1970. She settled down reasonably well, and though there were periods of moodiness, she seemed a likeable, friendly girl on the surface, and showed considerable affection to both foster parents. Mr and Mrs Marlborough liked her and found her intelligent. They inquired whether they could adopt her. From then until 1985, when Kathleen ran away, she and Mr and Mrs Marlborough got on reasonably well together. There were periods of difficulty. Kathleen did not always find things easy in high school. In 1982, she was admonished and discharged on two stealing charges, but she must have appeared for the most part to have overcome the very difficult start she had had. In 1984, she was told that her father had murdered her mother. That was something that she had to be told. The news had a profound effect upon her. She got in touch with Mr and Mrs Platt, who gave her some baby photographs and a photograph of her mother but she did not pursue her relationship with them. Her relationship with Mr and Mrs Marlborough became worse and the final break came after a disagreement about a boyfriend. She was 17 when she left home as she took up a relationship with Mr Folbig in the following year. So in her first 18 months of life, it must have been horrific 
a violent drunk father and a gambling drunk mother who didn't give a shit about her. Both are then suddenly gone when her father kills her mother. She seemed to come good as she got older, but as we all know, physical and sexual trauma at an early age that can lay dormant and rise up at any time. So Kathleen met Craig Gibson Folbig in 1985 and they began living together in 1986. They purchased a house in Mayfield, a suburb of Newcastle, in May 1987 and lived there. They married in September of the same year. Their first child, Caleb, was born on the 1st of February 1989. He was a healthy, full-term baby. He used to breathe noisily and used to stop breathing in order to feed. Accordingly, he was referred to a paediatrician, Dr. Springthorpe, who diagnosed laryngomalacia or floppy larynx. Dr. Springthorpe thought that the condition was mild and that Caleb would grow out of it. Craig Folbig was in full employment and left Kathleen the responsibility of caring for the child day by day. He was a heavy sleeper who was difficult to wake. Apparently, he never attended to Caleb or any of the couple's other children at night. The responsibility for attending to the needs of the children while the family slept was Kathleen's. Now, what they do talk about other children, although at this point only Caleb is born. On the 20th of February 1989, Kathleen put Caleb to sleep in his bassinet in a room adjoining the bedroom used by her and her husband. Just before 3am, she woke Craig screaming and saying that there was something wrong with the child. Caleb was lying on his back, dead, still wrapped in the rug which he had been put to bed. Nothing about the circumstances of Caleb's death gave rise to any suspicion that it was other than natural, and a diagnosis of sudden infant death syndrome was made. Such a diagnosis is made when a child of appropriate age, usually between two and six months, dies suddenly and unexpectedly and there is no reason to suspect an unnatural cause of death. To those around her, particularly Craig, Kathleen appeared not to be badly affected by the death. Soon she resumed to her former work and social habits. Now, it was believed at the time that there was a link between SIDS and the socio-economic status of families experiencing SIDS deaths. A local SIDS organisation recommended to the Folbigs that they renovate their home, and they did so. Their second child, Patrick, was born on the 3rd of June 1990. He was a healthy and happy baby. A sleep study was conducted on him when he was about 10 days old. The results were normal. To all appearances, Kathleen was happy. Craig did not return to work for several months, but remained at home to help her. Just after he returned to work, an incident described as an acute or apparent life-threatening event, or ALTE, took place. Patrick was four and a half months old. On the evening of the 17th of October 1990, Kathleen put Patrick to bed in a cot in his bedroom. Craig looked at him before he went to bed. He was lying on his back, covered with a sheet and blanket. During the night, while she was attending to Patrick, 
Kathleen screamed and woke Craig. He ascertained that the child was breathing and started to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation on him. An ambulance was called. The ambulance officers took Patrick straight to the hospital. They noted that he was in respiratory distress and gave him oxygen. He eventually regained consciousness but began to suffer fits. Many diagnostic tests were performed on him but the cause of the ALTE was never formally determined. A paediatric neurologist, Dr Wilkinson, diagnosed epilepsy and cortical blindness. Apart from his major neurological problems, Patrick continued healthy and developed normally. The responsibility for his care fell primarily upon Kathleen. Craig noticed that she would often become angry with him and the child. When she did so, she made growling sounds. Kathleen, for some time, had been keeping a diary in which she recorded thoughts and anxieties she was having about the children. Craig found an entry written about her inability to look after Patrick, her belief that Craig and Patrick would be better off without her, and her intention to leave the family. She wrote that Craig and his family could look after the child better. Craig mentioned the matter to his sister, Mrs. Newitt, and she was anxious to help. They persuaded Kathleen to stay. Just getting away from the court records now, this is exactly how Kathleen's mother was. Kathleen's mother, Kathleen Donovan, basically left two daughters from two different families. So she was married twice or de facto. She had two daughters in her first marriage. She just got up and left. In the second marriage, basically that's what she did. She would just get up and go. She just didn't give a shit about her kids. So you can see Kathleen Folbig here is having the same sort of feelings that she wants to run away, that um, you know maybe things are better without her anyway. So back to the court records. On the morning of the 13th of February 1991, while Craig was at work, Kathleen summoned an ambulance and telephoned Craig, Mrs. Newitt and Dr. Wilkinson. Patrick was lying on his back in his cot, warm but dead. Mrs. Newitt went to pick him up, but Kathleen stopped her. At the hospital, a physician determined that Patrick had suffered a cardiac arrest but could find no cause. A post-mortem examination was conducted, but the cause of death was undetermined. So, now there are two dead children, both just babies, What luck would you have that your first two kids would die so young? Unless it wasn't luck at all, but something more sinister. But we'll get to that later. Kathleen would not talk about what had happened other than to say that she had checked on the child and found him in that state. As before, she seemed not to have been badly affected by the death and she resumed working and going out socially. Kathleen and Craig moved to a house in Thornton in the Hunter Valley. Kathleen pressed him to have another child. He agreed on condition that Sid's specialists were involved in its care. Sarah was born on the 14th of October 1992. She was a happy, healthy baby. A sleep study conducted about three weeks old showed some small apneas which were considered normal. 
Even so, a sleep apnea monitoring blanket was used. Kathleen was still anxious and doubted her ability to look after her child and the frequent false alarms to which the apparatus was prone did nothing to allay her anxieties and doubts. She wanted to abandon the use of the monitor. Now, this does raise a question. If the sleep apnea blanket was giving you the shits because of the false alarms and that you and only you knew that your previous children did not die from natural causes, you would probably want to get rid of the blanket so you would not get woken up by it. But that is part of a theory. Only you would know that there was no requirement for it. But let's go on. Kathleen's fears and anxieties continued. She frequently lost her temper with Sarah, growling as before. Use of the sleep apnea blanket ceased two or three days before the 29th of August 1993. Sarah was unwell and uncooperative. Kathleen experienced difficulty putting her to bed. She growled at her and hugged her tightly to her chest, then threw her at Craig, telling him to deal with her. He calmed her and put her to sleep in her bed at the end of his and Kathleen's bed. She was on her back, covered with a sheet and a blanket. The family slept. During the night, Kathleen rose and took Sarah out of the room to attend to her. Later, she would scream and wake Craig, telling him that Sarah was dead. At the post-mortem examination, small abrasions were noticed near Sarah's mouth. The lungs showed potential hemorrhage, minor congestion and edema. These signs were all consistent with death by asphyxiation by the application of mild force. Death was attributed to unknown natural causes. Now, there's three kids dead and an extremely early age. Initially, Kathleen appeared affected by the death. She became despondent and aimless. She refused to discuss matters except to repeat her story of having found Sarah dead. The relationship between her and Craig deteriorated and there were several separations. By early 1996, the couple were together again and living in Singleton. Their relationship had improved and they'd made new friends. Kathleen pressed Craig to have a fourth child. Laura was born on the 7th of August 1997. She was healthy. Laura was tested for many genetic, biochemical and metabolic disorders. The results were all normal. A number of sleep and apnea tests were conducted and there was at first an indication of mild central apnea. It was not dangerous, however, and improved as Laura got older. As with Sarah, a sleep monitor was provided. Also, as before, there were many false alarms and Kathleen found it impossible to conceal her impatience at the need to manage the sleep monitor. All her fears and anxieties continued unabated. The relationship between Kathleen and Craig deteriorated again. They spoke and wrote to one another about separating and about what would happen to Laura in that event. Increasingly, Kathleen spent her time at the gym during the day and with friends at night. 
On the 27th of February 1999, Laura was not well and behaved in a way that Kathleen found irritating. She spun round, screamed at her and knocked her over. On the following day, Craig noticed that Laura was avoiding her mother. On the next morning, the 1st of March, Laura was subdued and clinging to her father. She was upset that he was about to leave for work. Kathleen lost patience with her and growled at her. She pinned Laura's hands to her high chair in an attempt to force feed her. Craig and Kathleen argued. He left for work. Not long afterwards, Kathleen telephoned Craig at work and they agreed that they had to discuss their problems once again. Later in the morning, having attended her gymnasium class, Kathleen took Laura to Craig's work. She took Laura home at about 11.30am. Something happened shortly afterwards. Kathleen called an ambulance and when officers arrived, they found her performing cardiopulmonary massage on the child, who was unconscious. Not breathing, bradycardic, warm and centrally cyanosed. The officers were unsuccessful in their attempts to resuscitate her. On the post-mortem examination, the presence of mild myocarditis, an inflammatory condition of the heart, was detected. The pathologist considered that myocarditis was not the cause of death. However, he did decline to determine a cause. Okay, so now four kids are dead. As I said before, Caleb was 20 days old, Patrick just over six months old, Sarah 10 months old and Laura just over 18 months old. This all happened in a 10-year period. Kathleen displayed signs of grief and some friends thought them genuine. However, others had doubts. At the funeral, her foster sister, Mrs. B, heard Kathleen remark, that was such a weight off my shoulders. Then she saw her return to her normal self. So Laura died on March the 1st and police attended the site and took notes that the place looked well kept with nice surroundings. Later on, Craig came across diaries written by Kathleen, recording at greater length over a long period of time her thoughts and feelings about many things, including her perceptions of her capacity to care for the children. It's on reading the diaries that Craig had suspicions that he passed on to police that Kathleen had actually murdered her four children. Over the next two years, police would investigate Kathleen. Craig had left, but when Kathleen tried to destroy her diaries, he was able to save one, the one he would give to police. Listening devices were installed in her house, and these picked up Kathleen rehearsing what she would believe she would have to say in a future hearing. On the 19th of April 2001, after nearly two years of investigation, Kathleen Folbig was charged with four counts of murder. Now, before I get into the court case and read out some of the diary entries, you must be saying to yourself, why didn't someone ask questions at the time this was all happening, especially after the second, third and fourth death? Well, the Folbigs moved around a lot, attended different doctors and different hospitals. 
Although there would have been suspicions amongst the family, I guess the kids were all well-dressed, fed, and there were no signs of abuse. The social services had no record of abuse in the family. So no one person or entity had all the dots to put together. On the 17th of May 2001, Kathleen was granted bail. She told the court she wanted to return home to live with her boyfriend, Tony Lambkin, and to resume her waitressing job while preparing her defence. Kathleen told the court via video from Mullawa Correctional Facility that she had a very stable relationship, saying, he wishes me to be his wife. Lambkin told the court he would ensure that she did not flee and that he had lived with Kathleen since October 2000, so around seven months. Asked when he became aware of the case against Kathleen, he said, Not until she was arrested. I knew she had something wrong, but I did not know what was going on. Now, police had opposed bail, saying that she would try to manipulate her estranged husband and father of the dead children in order to change his evidence. Now, Craig Folbig told police that after the death of Laura, the relationship broke down and he had soon moved out. He told them that he had read one of her diaries that had entries relating to the deaths, which he found disturbing. One day after Laura's death, he had overheard Kathleen speaking to herself using three different voices. So, what the court found when she went to trial was that on the 20th of February 1989, Kathleen put Caleb to sleep in his bassinet and during the night she got up, went to Caleb and smothered him. At 3am she screamed and woke her husband who found Caleb was lying on his back dead still wrapped in the rug in which he had been put to bed. Remember, at the time, the death was put down to SIDS. The court found that in Patrick's case, that on the evening of the 17th of October 1990, he was put to bed and later that night, Kathleen cut off his air supply by the use of a hand or some soft material. Later she screamed and woke her husband and an ambulance was called. Patrick survived but now suffered epilepsy and cortical blindness, and that resulted from Kathleen's attack. It's at this stage that Craig Folbig noticed that Kathleen would often get angry at him and the child, and when she did, she made growling sounds. On the morning of February 13, 1991, the court found that Kathleen smothered Patrick. She again alerted her husband, a Mrs. Newitt, a Dr. Wilkinson and the ambulance services. Patrick was lying on his back in his cot, warm but dead. Mrs. Newitt went to pick him up, but Kathleen stopped her. At the time, a hospital physician determined that Patrick had suffered a cardiac arrest but could find no cause. A post-mortem examination was conducted, but the cause of death was undetermined. In Sarah's case, the court found that the sleep apnea blanket was not used a few days before Sarah's death. Sarah was unwell and uncooperative. And as we said before, Kathleen experienced difficulty putting her to bed. She growled at her and hugged her tightly to her chest, then threw her at Craig, telling him to deal with her. He calmed her and put her to sleep in her bed at the end of his and Kathleen's bed. 
She was on her back, covered with a sheet and blanket. And that's when the family went to sleep. But during the night, Kathleen rose and took Sarah out of the room to attend her. She then smothered her. In the absence of any account of what happened, the court inferred that Kathleen acted in a rage. She put Sarah back into her bed, woke Craig screaming and pretending that she'd just found Sarah in that condition. At the post-mortem examination, small abrasions were noticed near Sarah's mouth. The lungs showed potential hemorrhage, minor congestion and edema. Now these signs were all consistent with death by asphyxiation by the application of mild force. However, the death was attributed to unknown natural causes. In the case of Laura's death, the court found that on the 27th of February 1999, Laura was not well and behaved in a way that Catherine found irritating. She spun around, screamed at her and knocked her over. On the following day, Craig noticed, as we said before, Laura was avoiding her mother. Now, as I said before, on the next morning, the 1st of March, remember Laura was subdued and clinging to her father. She was upset that he was about to leave for work. Then Kathleen lost patience with her and she grounded her. She pinned Laura's hands to her high chair in an attempt to force feed her. Now, Craig and Kathleen then argued, and then Craig went to work. Not long afterwards, Kathleen telephoned Craig at work, and they agreed that they had to discuss their problems once again. Later in the morning, having attended her gymnasium class, Catherine took Laura to Craig's work. She took Laura home at about 11.30am. Now, something happened shortly afterwards to raise her ire once again, and she suffocated Laura. She summoned an ambulance. When the officers arrived, they found her performing cardiopulmonary massage on Laura, who was unconscious, not breathing, bradycardic, warm and centrally cyanosed. The officers were unsuccessful in their attempts to resuscitate her. On the post-mortem examination, the presence of mild, mild myocarditis, an inflammatory condition of the heart, was detected. The pathologist considered that myocarditis was not the cause of death. However, he declined to determine a cause. Out of all the medical expert witnesses that gave evidence, none were prepared to say that the signs pointed only to smothering, but the medical evidence generally was that the result of each event was consistent with having been caused by acute asphyxiation. Now, the jury did accept that evidence. They had to be satisfied in respect of each of the five events that there was no reasonable possibility that it had happened naturally. So each of the expert witnesses gave their opinion based solely on the facts presented to them for each case. The arguments in favour of natural explanations for the deaths and Patrick's ALTE were unimpressive in the light of the whole of the evidence. The evidence showed that natural but unexplained death was rare in the community and that there was no demonstrated genetic link to explain multiple deaths in a single family. Now that the advantage the jury had over these medical witnesses 
was that they were able to view all the evidence for all the deaths and not just see them as single events. They were also able to listen to the testimony of Craig Folbig, the police and Kathleen's diaries. Now, Kathleen did not give evidence at her trial, but her diaries were admitted in evidence. Now, I'll go on to some of the diary entries. The Crown case relied in part on the contents of Kathleen's diaries. It was submitted that the diaries contained virtual admissions of guilt, of the deaths of Caleb, Patrick and Sarah, and admissions that she realised that she was at risk of causing the death of Laura. The diary entries record descriptions of her state of mind from time to time, her feelings of tiredness and frustration, her feelings of guilt for having mistreated her children, examples of relevant extracts that the prosecution used. Now, they come up under a couple of headings. First one was difficulties with caring for the children. Here we go. And I know I'll have help and support this time. When I think I'm going to lose control like last time, I'll just hand baby over to someone else. That was the 18th of June 1996. But I think losing my temper stage and being frustrated with everything has passed. I now just let things happen and go with the flow. An attitude I should have had with all my children if given the chance I'll have with the next one. That was on the 14th of October 1996. Next one. Maybe then he will see when stress of it all is getting to be too much and save me from ever feeling like I did before during my dark moods. Hopefully preparing myself will mean my end of my dark moods or at least the ability to see it coming and say to him or someone, hey, help, I'm getting overwhelmed here. Help me out. That will be the key to this baby's survival. This was the 6th of June, 1977. Next one. Very depressed and angry with myself. Angry and upset. I've done it. I lost it with her. I yelled at her so angrily that it scared her. She hasn't stopped crying. Got so bad I nearly purposely dropped her on the floor and left her. I restrained enough to put her on the floor and walk away. Now that was the 28th of January 1998. Now under the heading of admissions or I guess what they're trying to say confessions in her diary there was I think I'm more patient with Laura I take the time to figure out what is wrong now instead of just snapping my cog wouldn't have handled another like Sarah she saved her life by being different in reference to Laura now that was on the 25th of October 1997 next one Craig has a morbid fear about Laura Well, I know there's nothing wrong with her. Nothing out of ordinary anyway. Because it was me, not them. With Sarah, all I wanted was for her to shut up. And one day, she did. That was the 9th of November, 1997. Next one is, She's a fairly good-natured baby. Thank goodness. It has saved her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned. Now that's on the 31st of December 1997. And the last one, went to my room and left Laura to cry. Was gone probably five minutes, but it seemed like a lifetime. I feel like the worst mother on earth. Scared that she'll leave me now, like Sarah did. 
I know I was short-tempered and cruel sometimes to her and she left, with a bit of help. I don't want that to ever happen again. I actually seem to have a bond with Laura. It can't happen. I'm ashamed of myself. I can't tell Craig about it because he'll worry about leaving her with me. Only seems to happen if I'm too tired. Her moaning, bored, whinging sound drives me up the wall. Now that was on the 28th of January 1998. So as you can see, if you look at these diary entries in a certain way, like when she says that Laura saved herself by not being like Sarah and that she knows there's nothing wrong with Laura and because it was me, not them. Now, that what the prosecution was inferring there was she killed them. There was nothing wrong with them. And then looking again, it saved her from the fate of her siblings. That's in reference to Laura being an easier baby or an easier child. So the last one there, when it said uh, short-tempered and cruel sometimes to her and she left with a bit of help. Now, with that little bit of help, what little bit of help? Now, with all of this, this is what the prosecution was trying to get across to the jury, that these were admissions of guilt. Now, when we get to another thing, which was the similarities of each death, Now, the Crown emphasised the similarity in the circumstances of each death. The trial judge summarised the aspects of the Crown case in the following terms. The Crown case is that there was a remarkable degree of similarity in the five events. They were so similar, the Crown submits, that it would be unreasonable to conclude that the deaths and Patrick's ALTE, or apparent life-threatening event, or any of them, happened naturally. The law is that sometimes there may be such a striking similarity between different events that a jury may safely conclude that they did not all happen by coincidence. Putting it another way, the circumstances of the events are so remarkably similar that it would be an affront to common sense to conclude that they all happened naturally and coincidentally. If having considered the submissions of the Crown and the defence, you come to the view that the five events, or any number of them, are so strikingly similar that they cannot all have happened naturally, you are entitled to take that conclusion into account in considering whether the Crown has proved its case on the charge you are considering. I must give you special warning, however, about taking into account when considering any particular charge the facts which give rise to the other charges. You must not say that simply because the accused killed a particular child or caused Patrick's ALTE, she must have killed all the children and caused Patrick's ALTE. Putting it another way, if you are satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the accused is guilty of any of the charges, you may not say that she is therefore automatically guilty of them all. That is an unfair way of approaching the matter and you must not use it. So that's the the judge uh, directing the jury there about how they have to think about all the facts and keeping all the five events uh, separate. Now, on the expert evidence... 
the Crown also relied on a body of evidence given by a number of expert witnesses. Now, it was summarised, and uh, I'll, I'll read out some of that summary. Now, it was not a reasonable possibility that Caleb's death had been caused by his defective larynx. That it was not a reasonable possibility that Patrick's apparent life-threatening event had resulted from either encephalitis or a spontaneous epileptic episode. That it was not a reasonable possibility that Patrick's death had been caused by an epileptic episode causing him to stop breathing suddenly and for long enough to die. That it was not a reasonable possibility that Sarah's death had been caused by a displaced uvola. That it was not a reasonable possibility that Laura's death had been caused by myocarditis. That it was not a reasonable possibility that there was, in any individual case, some other natural cause of death. That absent a natural cause of death in any one of four successive infants' deaths in a single family, the only inference rationally available was that the deaths had been caused in some unnatural way. That the only rational inference as to the nature of the unnatural cause was that each of the children had been suffocated by somebody and that the only person to whom the evidence pointed in that connection was, in each case, Kathleen. Now, when it comes to psychological reports, especially in regards to the diaries, look, now if you get 10 psychologists to do 10 reports, you're going to get 10 different answers. So this will be a really difficult area to produce real evidence. Yes, her diary entries do not explicitly have confessions of guilt, but they could be read that way. So this is a really wishy-washy part of the evidence as far as I am concerned. But seen as a whole, I can see where it hints that Kathleen did kill her children. Now, if you, statistics do come into it, but again, statistics are great for statisticians. The chance that one child dies of unnatural causes compared to one child being murdered, now that's one thing. As you get to the second child dying of unnatural causes compared to the second child being murdered, well, by one report I read, which was called Sudden Infant Death or Murder, A Royal Confusion About Probabilities by Nevin Sesadik in 2007. Now, without going into all the maths, it was more than 100 times more likely for two murders than two SIDS events in one family. Now, when you get into a second or third child dying of either natural or unnatural causes, this probability skyrockets in favour of the children being murdered over a natural death. As I said, statistics are good for statisticians, and in the real world, there will always be an exception. The problem is, when a jury is confronted with all this evidence, they will make their decision with all the facts put before them. So... When you look at medical reports that can't say explicitly that the death was natural and you look at the chances of four children dying in the same family, when you look at the diary entries a certain way and you look at other evidence police were able to get from witnesses and listening devices, you can see that an overall picture comes into view. 
And with that, Catherine Megan Folbig was tried for four counts of murder and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm with intent. On the 21st of May 2003, a jury returned verdicts of guilty in respect of three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm. On the 24th of October 2003, Kathleen was sentenced to imprisonment for 40 years with a non-parole period of 30 years. A notice of appeal against conviction and sentence was filed on the 8th of July 2004. The appeal was heard on the 26th of November 2004 when judgment was reserved. On the 17th of February 2005, the court delivered judgment. The appeal against conviction was dismissed, but the appeal against sentence was allowed and Kathleen resentenced to a total period of imprisonment of 30 years with a non-parole period of 25 years. Kathleen has always maintained her innocence. So, as I said at the start of the episode, New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman announced there would be an inquiry into the convictions to, as he says, ensure public confidence in the administration of justice. It looks like they have had a fresh look at the autopsy reports and other medical evidence. They have a new look at the diary entries as well. So until all that happens, that's about it. Now, tonight I have refrained from giving my opinion on this case. As you know, I normally get the rage and opinionize quite a bit. But as this case was built on circumstantial evidence and there is an inquiry and maybe a new trial coming up, I just brought you the court records as the case stands today. And I'll leave it right here at this moment. Other than if you want to read a more in-depth account, you can read Matthew Ben's book, When the Bow Breaks, The True Story of Child Killer Kathleen Folbig. Okay, so it's the end of the show. Now we get to all the housekeeping. Patreon, thank you so much to all my past and present Patreon Islanders. And welcome to the new Patreon supporters, Shay Murray and Andrew Griffiths. Thank you so much for your support. You too can support the island for as little as a dollar a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland or for one-off donations, go to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. All money goes back into the show and it's very much appreciated and it keeps the island commercial free as this is a listener-supported podcast. Don't you hate those ads that blast your eardrums? Anyway, some of the funds are paying for my trip to Melbourne to meet up with Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder plus Brod from Felon next month. (laughs) I'll get that out. It will be a meet and greet with possibly other podcasters, so check your social media for that. It will be on the 17th of November at a venue to be announced. Also, on the Friday, I will be recording another show with Barney and Tara. That's going to be great. But you can also support the show by rate, reviewing and sharing. So if you have friends or rellos that want to listen, grab their phone and hook them up on the island. You can get merch at truecrimeisland.threadless.com where there are T-shirts, hoodies, mugs of rage and plenty of other stuff. Now, don't buy the... Don't buy the black mugs, they suck. I will do an overhaul of the shop when I get time and I will put more stuff up there. But if you want koozies, keyrings, stickers or lapel pins, you need to email me. Now, 
my email for anything you want to talk to me whatever give me case suggestions is cambo at truecrimeisland.com I can price it up for you it all depends what you want where you live there are links and downloads for everything at the island website truecrimeisland.com for social media search for True Crime Island and join the closed Facebook group where our lovely mods will let you in and thanks to Senga Jason Erica and Susan there's Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at True Crime Island. I have two promos this week. Now, first one, it is Obscura, a true crime podcast, shining a light on the dark. Check out Justin and his podcast. There's something a little different. I was just listening to one of the episodes there. It's fantastic. And the other podcast is from Phil Holmes. It's called The Paranormal News Show. If you like something different from true crime, give it a whirl. I think it's coming soon. Well, that's about it for tonight. And lots of love to Maggie James. So this has been Cambo. And you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom, bakalanga. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. This is Justin, the host of Obscura, a true crime podcast. If you enjoy single narrator true crime podcasts with a focus on less covered cases and unflinching detail, then Obscura may be for you. But don't take my word for it. Obscura can be found on your favorite podcast app. Hello, I'm Phil Holmes, and this is my new paranormal podcast. This is the Paranormal News Show, hosted by my man, Phil Holmes. Each episode, I take a look at that week's worldwide paranormal news, new ghost hauntings, new Bigfoot sightings, and new reports of lights in the sky. Some of the stories are serious, some are outrageous, but all are shocking, and all are paranormal. This is the Paranormal News Show. And in each episode, I get to tell you some historical paranormal stories, some you'll know, and some I hope you don't. Plus, our listeners get to share with you their paranormal stories. And all of a sudden, I felt someone sit on the bed. I got a sense that something was there. I need to look around. Sometimes when I'm the first person at work and I walk down that hallway, it sounds 
as if there's someone behind me. I turn around, there's nobody. I saw a very thin black figure run through a wall. I was terrified of this house we lived in. It was an old, old country house. There were several, several things that, that I would see in that house. I saw five bright circles appear across the sky in clouds. I was just kind of always afraid to go in that room. The rest of us put our fingers on the glass. First of all, we asked if uh, there was any spirit in the room, and uh, the glass moved to yes. This is the Paranormal News Show, hosted by Phil Holmes. And I'll talk to the world's leading paranormal experts. So, wherever you get your podcast from, search now for Paranormal News Show and hit subscribe. Then, find us on all the social medias. Episode 1 is coming very soon, and I can't wait for you to join me on the Paranormal News Show. This is the Paranormal News Show. Coming soon.